Now we're going to continue our series, um, The Best News You've Ever Heard, so turn in your Bibles to Luke 15, Luke 15, verses 25 through 32. Luke 15, 25 through 32. I have a friend named Harriet. Um, Harriet is a grandmother, but when she was a young single woman, away from her parents for the very first time, quite a distance away, she had an obscene caller. Now, if you grew up before the days of cell phones, as many of us did, you're familiar with this concept of someone being able to call you anonymously, you don't know what number they're calling from or who they are, and say creepy, dirty things to you over the phone. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you were the obscene caller at some point. I don't want to know. It's none of my business. But Harriet was dealing with this young single woman getting this creepy stuff on a regular basis. Now, along around that same time, her mom got very sick. And don't worry, Harriet's mom lived through this episode I'm going to tell you about, and she lived a long life after this, but at the time it looked very dire. And there was one particular night where Harriet just spent the whole night up by the phone praying and waiting for the next phone call because her her uncle, her mom's brother, was calling her every hour or so giving her an update. And every phone call was a little bit more dire than the last. And so it got to be about six in the morning and she'd been up all night praying and crying and waiting for the next call and and she just knew the next call, when that phone rang, it was going to be her uncle saying, she's gone, she's passed away. And the phone rang, and she went with trembling hands, and she picked up the phone, and she said, hello, and it was the obscene caller. And she said, oh, thank God it's you. <laughs> and he never called again. And Harriet told me that story seven, eight years ago, and I'll, I'll never forget it. It's one of my favorite stories. And some of you will never forget that story, even though you've never met Harriet, because a good story just sticks in our brains, doesn't it? And that's why the greatest teacher who ever lived, Jesus Christ, chose to do most of his teaching through stories. He didn't stand up in point one, point two, point three. okay, let's end with a poem. He told stories. And his most famous story is the parable of the prodigal son. And it's so famous and it's so powerful, we're spending three weeks on it. And then we're going to look at some other of his great stories about grace. But two weeks ago, we started the series. We talked about how this story, which really should be titled The Story of the Two Lost Boys, because it's really about two sons, not one. There's three characters in it. There's the father who represents God. And then the two boys, who I said represent two different ways of living. Some of you were here, you remember this. Let me just refresh your memory. I said the the younger son, it represents kind of a rebel mentality, that rebel personality that that some of us have that says, I'm going to do things my own way. I don't care what society thinks. I don't care what people think of me. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to find happiness on my own terms. And on the other hand, the, the older brother represents the rule keeper, the person who, like many of us, wants to be thought of well, wants to, be, wants to have a good reputation, and so we want to make our success by living up to the expectations of our parents and our teachers and our employers and society at large and God Himself, and we want to always do what's right and follow the rules, and that's just our nature. And all of us live somewhere on a continuum between those two points, but all of us sort of lean more in one direction than the other. And so the first Sunday, two weeks ago, we talked about how God feels about rebels, like this, this younger brother who runs away from home, even though his dad is, has loved him all his life, he says, give me my money, I don't care about anything else, runs away, squanders it all, all while living. 
And the older brother, meanwhile, has stayed and has done the right thing. We talked about how this story tells us how God feels about those younger brother types, those rebels out there, and how he wants them to come home. And he cares more about his relationship with them than he does about the things that they have done. And he'll do anything to bring them home. And he opposes anything that stands in the way of that. Today we're going to look more at the older brother, the part of the parable that we usually tend to ignore. And I say he is the main character of the story for reasons we'll get into in a moment. But what does this say to those of us who are rule keepers by nature? What is God saying to us today? So let's read starting with verse 25. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So it was not a Baptist party, you see. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's the way the story ends. Very unusual ending. It's the only parable I know of that ends on a cliffhanger. We'll get to the reason why later on. Now, Jesus was telling this story to rule keepers. The very first two verses of chapter 15 say, it says that because uh, prostitutes, tax collectors, other sinners were coming to know Christ and Christ was spending so much time with them that the, the rule keepers of society, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the people who were the best at doing what was right and judging those who didn't, they got angry. And they said, what's the matter with this guy? He claims to be a rabbi, and yet he spends all his time with these awful people. And so Jesus told this story to them. And that's why I say that the older brother is the main character. And the interesting thing is, any good story has a surprise element, has a twist ending, right? We know one of the surprises of this story is that this boy who, did, who hurt his father so deeply and disgraced his family so terribly was welcomed back into the home. And the father didn't say, okay, you pay me back what you took. And he doesn't say, okay, you gravel for a while, you grovel for a while before me, or let me shame you for a while. No, he, he welcomes him back. And that's a surprise even today to realize that God is that gracious. But there's an even greater surprise in this story. The greatest surprise in this story of all is that at the end of the story, the rebel son is saved and the rule-keeping son is still lost. The rebel son has, has sown his wild oats, has, has done awful things, regrets it, comes home. But that rule-keeping brother is still outside the party. See, both, both boys are lost. Both boys need the grace of God. Both rule keepers and rebels need the blood of Christ to be saved. And at the end of the story, it is the rule keeper who's still lost, which should tell us something. Being a rule keeper can be good. And certainly once you come to know Christ, there are commands to follow and there, there are things to do that, that help us grow in Christ and help us honor Him in the world. But there's something about that rule keeping personality that so many of us have that can draw us away from God and we don't even know it. Because we think we're in, his, in the right 
because we're doing all the right things. But look, look with me when I say that both boys were lost. I want you to look with me at, at some signs at this conversation between the older brother and the father that show us that deep down inside, that older boy didn't love his dad any more than the younger one did. First of all, notice that the father has to go out to his son. He's thrown this big party, and we miss this because for us, hospitality is not a big thing, but in that culture, hospitality was everything. And if a, a father, if a man like this, or a woman, either one, had thrown a big banquet and invited the whole community in, then their reputation before the community was on the line. The, the quality of the food and the wine that you serve, the, the hospitality you show, the way you welcome your neighbors, that told people something about you. And so for this, for this man, this patriarch, to have to turn his back on his guests in the middle of this great party and go out to his son was not just an inconvenience. It meant that he was disgracing himself. It looked bad in front of everyone. And his older boy is the one who made him do that. Not only that, but when he gets out to him, the older boy doesn't say, oh, father. He doesn't say, listen, dad, I'm sorry. He says, look. You hear the directness, the shortness of the tone? And again, in our culture, there's nothing unusual. Sad to say, nothing unusual about an older child speaking rudely, disrespectfully to his mom or his dad. We see that all the time. But in that culture, it was not done. In that culture, I guarantee you, every dad in the crowd, as Jesus was telling this story, when Jesus got to this point, they thought to themselves, not my son. No child of mine is going to talk to me that way. I, I will backhand them, and I will, I will make, make sure they know they are not coming back in until they can talk to me in a respectful tone of voice. And the third thing, notice that when the boy is talking to his dad, he says, this son of yours. He doesn't say my brother. He doesn't call him by name. because He doesn't claim him anymore. He's this son, this, this boy of yours. Parents, have you ever done that with your kids? Do you hear what your son just said? Are you aware of what your daughter did at school today? This is serious. This is a, this is a brother who has disowned his son. To him, his brother is dead. He doesn't want anything to do with him anymore. And finally, fourthly, notice the anger. Why the anger on the, on the part of this older brother? It's not just because he wants his dad to be vindictive to the younger brother. Think about it for a moment. We said this during the first sermon two weeks ago. It, when, it, when the patriarch passed away, the kids were were due their inheritance, right? But the way it was structured, the oldest received twice what every other sibling got. So the oldest, in this case there were two, the oldest would get two-thirds of the inheritance. Uh, oldest children are the best, right? I mean, we, we deserve the best, I think. That's, they had it right back then. But, be that as it may, so when the younger boy left, he got one-third of the estate. The father had to go and sell one-third of his livestock, one-third of his lands, had to give the boy the proceeds, and the boy runs away. Now, as far as the older brother is concerned, that does not affect his position at all. But now that the younger son has come home and has been welcomed back, and the father has given him his ring and his robe and his sandals, you know what that means, right? That means that he gets a third again. That means that the father is saying, you're my son again. That means when I die, I'm going to take care of you. You get the, the share of the estate that would have been yours if you never would have left. Which is great for the younger son. 
for that older boy, it means his share just got smaller. You see what's going on here? That older son is saying, Dad, how dare you? You've taken from me what is mine. You haven't just welcomed back a sinner. You have taken from me what is mine. See, deep down inside, both boys suffer from the same sin. Both of them don't love their dad. They just want his money. The only difference between the two is the older son has gone about it in a more respectable way. Rather than go out and defy his dad, he has said, I'm going to get my dad's money by winning him over. By manipulating him through obedience, through hard work, through being a good boy. I'm going to get from my dad what I want from him. It's not about love. It's about me. It's about getting what I want. By the way, and by the way, isn't that the way religion tends to work? I'm going to do my part. I'm going to do what I think God expects. So maybe, maybe it'll pay off. That's why this boy is angry. Dad, when's it going to pay off? When, when am I going to get something? He gets the fattened calf. I haven't even gotten a, a, a little cabrito. I've got nothing. We, got, we have parties. I, I don't have anything to celebrate. We're throwing rocks. I could, I could have barbecued a goat. You got nothing from me. When's it going to pay off? And in light of this kind of disrespect, in light of this son, after all these years, finally revealing his true heart and saying, Dad, I don't even love you any more than my brother does. I just care about the money. Isn't it amazing how gracious the dad is at the end of the story? How he pleads with his son to come home? How most other dads in that culture would have said, you can, you can leave. The dad instead says, please come in. Your brother who was lost is, is now found. Your brother who is dead is now alive. We have to celebrate. Come, join us. And isn't it amazing that Jesus leaves us on a cliffhanger and doesn't tell us how the story ends? We don't know if that older brother came home or not. Why? I think it's because Jesus was making an appeal. Remember, He wasn't talking to rebels in this story. He was talking to rule keepers. And those, those devout and moralistic men who stood around Him, respected in their community, full of themselves and their own self-righteousness, they heard this Jesus, this man, this, Jewish, this Nazarene rabbi say to them, come home. I know you think you've done everything right, but you're so upset about, about my father's lost children coming home when you should be rejoicing. Why don't you come in and celebrate with us? Jesus was making an appeal, by the way, to the very same people who were presently conspiring to put Him on a cross and who would ultimately succeed. These men who hated Him to the death and Jesus stands before them begging and pleading, come into my Father's love. It's a poignant picture. It's an amazing thing to see. And the saddest thing of all, when you look at this story, the saddest thing of all is to realize how much the American Christian church today has in common with the people Jesus was pleading with. That's right. In my opinion, we have more in common with the Pharisees than we do with Christ. There are so many things we have in common with them. So many ways we are following in the footsteps of that older brother. So Christ's words to them are really His words to us. Let me read you this quote. Uh, Tim Keller, I often quote from him, wrote a book called The Prodigal God about this story. And he says this, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious 
while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. We talked about this earlier, a couple weeks ago, how in the old days, churches were full of rebel types. The, the gospel was attractive to them, now not so much. He says, however, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and the liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our members do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of older brothers than we want to admit. So the question I want us to wrestle with for the rest of our time is, am I an older brother? Am I the kind of person in the, who's in this story who doesn't really love God, it's more about me. I'm trying to manipulate God for what I want. Am I the kind of person who drives younger brothers away from God instead of bringing them home? So I want to ask you two quick questions. To kind of diagnose whether you're an older brother or sister or not. Question number one, what is my attitude toward God? What is my attitude toward my Father? You see, when we really come to know Christ and we come into the family of God, we're adopted as, as lost souls, orphans out there. We're brought into His family. We're overjoyed. And that's the, that's the defining characteristic of a new believer is joy and freedom and, and, and laughter and happiness. And there's a sense of awe. And, and nobody has to tell you to go to church. You're excited to come into the family of God and meet new people and, and learn from them and be inspired by them and support them and, as they support you. And you don't, nobody has to tell you to pray. I get to talk to the creator of the universe? Fantastic. Yes, absolutely. Sign me up. Let's sit down. Let's talk about things. I want to share, Lord, my life with you and, and, and hear what you have to say. We don't have to be told to read our Bibles. We're so excited. There's actually a book written by God to me? Well, of course I'm going to read it. I want to know what he has to say to me. Serving God, giving our offerings, all that we do as Christians when we first come into the family, it's all so exciting for us because the God of the universe has died for me. And I get to say thank you in some small way to him? Absolutely, I'm going to do it. And somewhere along the way, as we grow into that big brother mentality, we lose that sense of awe and wonder. It's no longer exciting, it becomes duty. To a, to a big brother, then going to church is a responsibility. I go there to show that I'm better than others. I read the Bible so I can know what the rules are, so I, can, so I can follow them, so I can be better than others, and so I can know how to beat other people over the head with the rules, because they need to know. Our service that we give, our offerings that we present, our, our prayers that we offer, it's all, it's all part of living up to this image of the perfect person, buttoned down and, and straight-laced so that all the world can see we've got it together. And when things don't go our way, as, as older brothers and sisters, when, when we don't get that promotion and some rebel does, when, when we get word from the doctor that, that things aren't the way we hoped they were inside our bodies, when our families experience trouble or, or some other calamity occurs, we're angry with God. He has broken the, the, the bargain that we had with Him. I thought, Lord, that uh, I would be faithful to You and I would go to church and I would obey the commands and I'd abstain from vices and I'd be called and set apart from the world and, and You would deliver by making me happy and free and, and wealthy and, and, and healthy. And what happened? 
Haven't I slaved for you? Haven't I, haven't I been perfectly obedient to your commands? You haven't even given me a young goat. When's it going to pay off? See, anytime you're angry at God because you feel like He hasn't given you what you deserve, that is a classic older brother or sister mentality. That's not, that's not Christianity. That's the religion of the Pharisees. What is my attitude toward God? It'll tell you a lot. Tim Keller in that same book tells a story that I love. This farmer uh, went out to his garden. He was harvesting and, and he got to the section of the, of the garden with carrots and he pulled up this humongous carrot, biggest carrot he'd ever seen. And he was so amazed at it, he just wanted to tell people about it. He thought, I'll, I'll, give, this, I'll give this to the king. He'll want to see this. And so he went to the palace and he's carrying this massive orange carrot and he goes before the king. He says, oh king, uh, I'm so uh, glad to be your subject. And look, this is the biggest carrot I've ever seen. I've grown this and and I want to offer it to you in in celebration of your greatness. And the king, who was a very wise man, he, he knew this was a sincerely given gift. He said, good job. You're clearly a very talented farmer and I want to I celebrate that kind of skill. And so there's a big tract of land right next to your farm that I own. I'm going to give that to you. Why don't you farm it for the both of us? And the farmer got up from his kneeling position and he was overjoyed. He had no idea the king would be so gracious. He went out uh, rejoicing. And there was a nobleman in the court of the king that day who saw all of this and he just laughed when he saw that carrot. And then he was amazed at the graciousness of the king. And he said to himself, well, if... If that's what a carrot will get you, let's see what I can get. So the next day, he brought into the palace this this massive, beautiful white stallion. He said, O king, O king, I am the best horse breeder in all of your land, and this is the finest stallion I have ever bred, and I offer it to you today as a gift in recognition of your greatness. Again, the king, very wise. He knew the heart with which this gift was given. He, he simply said, well, thank you, sir. Um, have a good day. And, and he had that horse led into his stables. And the nobleman said, well, wait a second. Yesterday, that, that ignorant farmer brought you that stupid carrot and you gave him a thousand acres. I bring you something worth way more and all you can say is thank you? And the king said, yes, that farmer gave me that carrot. You've given yourself that horse. So which one are we more like? Do we offer ourselves to God? Or do we offer things to God to give to ourselves? Do we serve God because we love Him? Or do we serve God because we want Him to serve us? Second question. What is my attitude toward younger brothers? What is my attitude toward rebel types and people who just don't do what they should? I know it's, it's easy. Everybody is part of some kind of group, some kind of club. Even when you were in school, you were a part of some kind of a clique. And it's, it's, it's nice to be part of a group and, and to look down on people who don't share your values. Let me tell you, I've got a friend who's not a Christian, and he once told me, he said, I know what evangelical Christians are. He said, they're people who are always angry because they're afraid that somebody somewhere might be having fun. And it reminds me of something else I heard. Laugh and the world laughs with you. Frown and the world knows you're Baptist. And we earn that, don't we? On the other hand, on the other hand, there are some people who are believers in Christ who are so engaging, who are so full of joy, who are so humble personally, 
that whether their personality is outgoing or more introverted, it doesn't matter. They're just magnetic. People are drawn to them. They just, they draw people in and people want to see them, want to be around them. And, and they, they often hear things like, you know, I, I never met a Christian I like until I met you. If more Christians were like you, I might want to become one. They even hear things like, you know, every time I'm around you, it makes me think I need God in my life. Some of you have heard that. And all of us need to hear that. We are the light of the world, Jesus said in Matthew 5. We are the salt of the earth. His, job, his plan A for us is that we would draw people to salvation. So, if you would say, honestly, I don't love God like I should. Honestly, I'm not drawing people to salvation. My attitude toward younger brothers is kind of scornful and just really don't like them. How does an older brother come home? If you would say, yeah, I, I do identify with that older brother. I, I, I don't have the things in my heart that I should toward God or toward others. How do you come home? How do you end this story happily and go into the party? Well, for some, Honestly, you would have to say, I, I've been in church my whole life and I've done all the right things and I've, I've gone through baptism or confirmation or whatever your home church uh, taught, but I, I never really, never really loved God. I never really came home. I've never really received His grace and confessed my sins and been saved. And that's true of many, many religious people. And if that's the, the case with you, you come home just like a, a younger brother comes home, just like the younger brother in this story comes home. You just come home and, and stand before God and say, I've got nothing to offer you. I've squandered everything you've given me, but if, if there's enough grace in your heart to receive me, and there will be. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. In a moment, we're going to have an invitation as we always do. And and if you're a, a religious person who, who would say, I've honestly never been saved, and you walk forward this morning and, and confess that before this group, it'll shock this whole group, and everybody will say, wow, God's doing a new thing here. That'll be the spark that sets off revival. But for many of you, you would have to say, honestly, I know that I'm in the family of God. I know that there was a time when I accepted Christ, and He came into my heart, and I've been forgiven, and I'm His, but I just, I, I've just... I'm just not where I need to be. If that's the case for you, some really good advice can be found in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, 4 through 5. I want to read that for you real quickly. Revelation 2, 4 through 5. By the way, this is a letter from Jesus to the church in the town of Ephesus. Um, Jesus talks to the Ephesians who had a lot in common with those of us who are rule keepers. They were very devout. They knew the Word of God. They uh, were very moral. But he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've lost your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So, Jesus says basically three things to us older brothers, older sisters. He says, is that, is that me or is that... Okay, we good? We're good. All right, awesome. Okay, so he says three things. Number one, he says, remember. Think back to where you came from. Remember what you had with me before. If you're a Christian and you can remember a time when you were more excited to be with God before, 
more excited about worship, more excited about sharing your faith, more excited about, about serving Him and learning about Him. Remember those days. Think about what it used to be like. Then he says, repent. He says it twice in verse 5. Repent. We hear that word, it's a very churchy word, but what it means is do a U-turn. It means admit to God, okay, I've been traveling this road, my own road, and I admit that it's, it's not getting me anywhere. I'm turning away from this current path, and I'm going to follow you again. I'm going to turn back towards home. Repent. By the way, if you're a rule keeper and you've been in church a long time, you're good at sounding repentant. You ever said this in prayer, especially publicly? Father, please forgive us our sins in the many ways we've failed you. Or something to that effect. I heard a good thing once. It said, if you only confess theoretical sins, then you really only have a theoretical Savior. Real repentance is specific. Real, real repentance is saying to God, Lord, the pride in my heart is awful. I am so self-righteous. I'm so judgmental toward others. I don't love you like I should. I really have tried to manipulate you. I am not winning souls like I should be winning souls. Lord, make me new. That's real repentance. And third, after you've remembered, after you've repented, he says, repeat. He says, do the things you did at first. He's talking to those Ephesians, and although they're doing a lot of good things, they're not doing the things they used to. By the way, this is good advice for any relationship. If you're in a marriage and things have gotten a little stale, if you've got an old friend and, and y'all aren't agreeing with one another or you're not happy with each other, a good thing to do is think, well, what are the things I used to do for that person? You know, I used to really listen when she talked. You know, I used to, I used to meet them once a week for coffee. Or I used to serve in some way, meet their needs and, and, and be of, of help to them. Why don't I do that anymore? Here's what I've learned about relationships. If you go back and do the things you used to do, the feelings will return. Don't wait until the feelings. Go and do the things you did at first. And that works in our relationship with God. Was there a time when you, you set aside unhurried time to spend with God and you don't do that anymore? It's time to return to that. Was there a time when you actually tithe 10% of your income like His Word commands and you've gotten away from that? Go back. Was there a time when every person you met, you, you tried to get to know them and, and tried to ask, do they know Christ? If not, I'm going to pray for their souls. I'm going to look for an opportunity to share my faith with them. If you haven't done that in a while, start doing it again. Go back and do the things you did at first. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. God is a gracious God and He wants us home no matter how far we've wandered. And nothing makes Him happier than when one of His children comes back home and gets right with Him again. So what I want you to do right now is bow your heads and close your eyes. Bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to be like an old-time evangelist for a moment here. No apologies on this, but bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you would say in your heart, and by the way, I'm not going to make you come forward if you raise your hand, but if you would say in your heart, you know what you said today to those older brothers really hits me on the head and I know that I'm not where I need to be. I don't love God like I should. I don't love the lost like I should. If some of that resonated with you, would you raise your hand right now? All right, keep them up because I want to say a quick prayer for you. Heavenly Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters this morning and thank you for their honesty and even those of us who were a little timid about raising our hand. Lord, pierce our hearts. Lord, remind us where we came from, the joy we used to have with you. Lord, help us to truly repent, confess our sins before you in honesty. 
And Lord, help us to go back and do the things we did at first. Restore to us the joy of our salvation and make us new. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.